Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And the Baker Street Journal, the leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship since 1946. Subscriptions available at bakerstreetjournal.com. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, Episode 77, The Speckled Band of Boston. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. Your Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket officer. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. And I'm Bert Walder. And despite our best efforts, you're still listening. That's amazing. Yes. We keep... Yeah, we're talking, we're talking about you there. Now sit up straight. You. Come on, don't slouch. Yes, don't our, slouch. our single listener. Keep your eyes on the road for gosh sakes. <laughs> yes. Don't. Don't be fiddling with your, your iPhone, with your Android, no, with your stop device. stop that. Those traffic signals are not options. That was a stop sign. Uh, look out! <laughs> Great. Uh, Can't listen to this while you're drunk. Well, how are you, my friend? I'm well. I'm well. The Sherlockian season is in, um, is in full flight. This is, this is for, you know, for those of us who are involved in multiple science societies, this is, a terrific time of the year. You know, we'll be talking about this more in a moment, but we've just been to one memorable um, Science Society anniversary, and there are many more meetings coming up until the summer heat wave sends us back to our air-conditioned libraries. <laughs> yeah, spring is a wonderful time in the Sherlockian world. Um, you know, you come out of the, the winter doldrums, uh, out of those uh, winter celebrations, usually around the birthday weekend in January, where everyone is completely bundled up. And um, usually April, April and May are the months that uh, uh, spring forth, pun intended, with Sherlockian activity. And, you know, some of the stories, of course, were set in April, uh, the Speckled Band being one. Uh, I do believe the Three Students was uh, around this time as well as the landlady babbled of green peas at 730. Mm. Uh, so, you know, th- this is uh, part of the the canonical cycle of uh, rebirth and spring and, uh, you know, the, the flowers blooming and enjoying the company of people in the outdoor air without bracing against the cold. Mm. You know, what's really neat about uh, attending some of these meetings in the spring is particularly you and I, my friend, we don't have to just wait uh, to talk to each other over Skype every month. We actually get to see each other in person once or twice. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, we. I think we should turn IHOs into a Scion. <laughs> yeah, well, we should. Yeah, we could have a pin and toasts and uh, papers and get thrown out of. Uh, you know, we can get actually at the same time we can get thrown out of a restaurant in Michigan and New Jersey. That's true. Yeah, and our slogan could be "Come and get hosed with IHOs." I hose, you hose, we all hose. We all hose. So, wait a minute. Yeah. That's that's sounding a little risque. No, it doesn't sound uh, good. So now, as you pointed out most recently in the quiz for the Speckled Band, there are all these um, uh, numerology features high in the canon. Yes. And um, but there's no adventure with the number two in the title, is there? There is not. Mm. Although, I mean, the closest we come here in the Speckled Band is the, the twin sisters. Yeah. Or no. Uh, there were other twins in the canon, too, right? Mm. Yeah. Thaddeus and uh, Bartholomew, Bartholomew Sholto, Sholto from the Sign yeah. of Four. Two Sholtos, no waiting. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. So it, it was really after those early stories that um, that Conan Doyle got tired of writing about twins. Well, but there's an idea we could throw out. You know, if two people want to form a very exclusive sign, you can call it the two Sholtos. <laughs> well, and if they met up with the solitary cyclist, it would be a menage a trois. <laughs> no, then it would be the three students. The three students, of course. Of course. Or the three Garadebs or the three Gables. Yeah. Oh. Now, of the three Gables, which one was Larry? That's what I <laughs> He was the middle one, wasn't he? Larry. The middle he, Gable. Well, he, he paled next to Clark. Um, oh, that's right. Who was a stand-in later for Shemp after Shemp took ill. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Anyway, it's nice to be back here. And hey, folks, if you would like to get in touch with us, and mm. we actually do have a uh, a a reward. So listen closely. There is a prize involved here, and this has nothing to do with the mental exaltation quiz. Um, please take the time to get in touch with us. We are, of course, at IHearOfSherlock.com. We are, uh, if you'd like to reach us on email, it's comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. Uh, we are on the social web, Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook. Our ID on all of those is IHearOfSherlock, so take your, your choice. And um, oh, what's, what's, that, what's that telephone thing we've got? Oh, that, does, wait, that doesn't still work, does it? Telephones? No one has a telephone. Occasionally. Anymore. Get out your old rotary dial telephone and dial 774-221-READ. So just put your fingers in those little holes and rotate it uh, clockwise. 774-221-READ, 774-221-7323. And for free, yes, absolutely that free. You can free. record record a comment, which we will be delighted to play on the program, provided it uh, is not explicit. And here is the challenge, because... We had uh, we had advertised back in uh, I think it was IHO's hmm seventy five maybe back in February the John H Watson Society's monograph series um, some observations upon the early writing of John H Watson M.D. Uh, by James O'Leary and as you know James uh, was just on the show. Uh, last episode, he was our quiz uh, contestant, and uh, we sent him off a nice prize for scoring three out of three. Um, but he wrote this monograph series, and 
uh, he, he, uh, he 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 uh, left me with a copy at the Speckled Band uh, dinner. I don't know if he did the same uh, yes. for you, Bert. Um, yes, and what a wonderful uh, dedication that he put that's, in that You know, I was going to remark on yes. that. Um, he said, uh, in between job searches, I discovered the world of Sherlock Holmes on the web, especially the Baker Street blog and the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere podcast. It was Bert Wolder and Scott Monty that inspired me to reach out to others and what was a solitary pursuit to join the discussion on the late Sherlock Holmes social network, connect with a local science society in the case of the fabled speckled band of Boston, post articles on the Baker Street blog, now the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website, and join a slighted vintner in a fledgling online society dedicated to a doctor <laughs> who is often in the shadow of his more famous friend. And uh, Henry goes on to dedicate... Uh, to uh, dedicate the, the monograph to Scott Monty, Burt Wolder, and the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere podcast. Yeah, isn't that nice? I, I was so touched and surprised uh, when I read that. And um, and James, as, I, as we know you're listening, thank you very much from the bottom of our heart for doing that. We are glad that you're part of our little community here. And we do have an extra copy of this monograph. Uh, I, I read it. It's, it's a fairly quick read. Uh, it's uh, probably about 50 pages long or so, 50, 55 pages. Um, it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. James goes on to uh, use chronologies to determine what Watson was writing about and why and uh, his, his role as a biographer, his role as a husband, um, and really uh, begins to parse apart some of the challenges with the multiple chronologists that they present. And he put together a very, uh, very compelling uh, argument here in this monograph series, which is available from uh, the John H. Watson Society at uh, johnhwatsonsociety.com. Yeah, and speaking of that, we really should pay tribute for a moment to the late Don Leiby, who is the slight inventor that James referred to, whose untimely passing uh, happened uh, f- several weeks ago, who was the driving force behind the Watson Society. Bob Katz and I were just out in Long Island for the Christopher Morley birthday, which we'll be talking about in a future episode. But on the way, we um, talked a little bit about Don, and it seems that few, if any, people have touched as many Sherlockians worldwide without ever meeting them in person than um, than Don Leiby did. And uh, yeah. now James has taken on, has he taken on an editorial role for the Watsonian? Um, I, it may be an associate role, but I know he's he's certainly a regular contributor to the uh, the journal, uh, the Watsonian, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously the monograph series here as well. Yeah. So that will be continuing. But if you don't know the Watson Society, you uh, should take a look, obviously, at the website. And um, Don, may he rest in peace, built a thriving uh, segment of the Sherlockian world around the Watson Society online. And I only regret never having the opportunity to um, to meet him. But he yeah. really, you know, he was on our list for an interview. Yeah, I know. I know. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But we we do have this uh, this copy of uh, the monograph series of uh, James O'Leary's contribution. 
Um, and here's how it's going to work. If you would like this single copy that we have, then you must use that audio call-in line, which, again, Bert, is? It is 774-221-7323. That's right. So dial that number up. Um, or, you know, record, uh, you know, just record into your phone and send us uh, an audio file at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. But this is an audio contribution. You must tell us in your call or in your audio contribution what you admire most about Watson. Oh, I like that. What you admire most about Watson, yeah. Uh, there's, there's so much, uh, to this man and, uh, certainly James gets into even more. So show us your dedication to Watson by leaving us an audio comment, uh, either on the phone number 774-221-7323 or just mm. attaching a, uh, an audio file mm. to an email comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. Or it's the spring and many people engage in pastimes that uh, take them outside. If you like, what you can do is take also the cardboard roll from a discarded roll of paper towels. And if you wrap that with aluminum and download online the plans to recreate Edison's original recording device with a particularly sharp carpet needle and a funnel, made of cardboard or even an old popcorn container, you could also record, provided you rotate it at a regular speed, um, your voice on that foil-wrapped um, paper towel roll. And you can send that to us, and, and the audio engineers who are part of the iHose network will enable us to listen to that too. But please, the last time we made this offer, we got so many copies of, of somebody saying, Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> And we don't want to hear that again. It really does need to be about Watson. Well, and don't forget, if you're going to use the uh, foil-wrapped tube, it must be coated in wax. Well, that would help. Wax that, on, but, but, wax off, yeah. all that. Yeah, and that means you need to get it in the mail before the weather turns even That's warmer, true. friends. That so, is true. So do it today. Uh, and I think we mentioned this on the last show, but uh, as a shortcut, if you're looking for any of our old episodes, we have a URL shortener that is specific mm-hmm. to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. It is iHose, go figure, iHose.co slash, and then you just put the show number in there, iHose 76, iHose 77. Right? So mm, this, this would be a pattern there. In, in, incredible, isn't it? Uh, this would be ihose.co slash ihose77. So, uh, well, wait a minute. You mean we can just go download this program now and don't have to record it? I like the sound of that. It's 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 one of those uh, the, those uh, wormholes in the uh, in, in the time portal, the time well, space continuum. Make, you know, it's going to make the whole rest of my day a lot easier. <laughs> uh, and of course, if you want to ke- keep up on the news, which we're about to uh, share with you. Uh, you can find uh, regular articles uh, shared on Flipboard or Scoop It. Uh, those are available at iHose.co slash FlipSherlock and iHose.co slash ScoopSherlock. But in the meantime, we would love to share some newsy items with you. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. Ah! 
How sensational. Yes. Fantastic. So. I like the sound of that. I know. I know. What do we have in the news this time around? Let's uh, get my, get my newspapers out here. So Stan Freeberg has passed away. Why is this important in the Sherlockian world? I can hear you asking. Why is this important in the Sherlockian world? Wow, that's amazing. I thought I said that to myself. Um, <laughs> and it's amazing how much I sound like Burt Wolder. It is. Well, I'm your conscience. <laughs> really? I, yes. I didn't know it said let your Burt Wolder be your guide. And, and boy, are you in good shape. <laughs> oh, well, Stan Freeberg, of course, was, uh, he was an advertising man, but he was a, a voice actor. He was a comedian. He was a, Radio personality, even a puppeteer. Uh, and he did a lot of offbeat things, did a lot of things with Dawes Butler and June Foray, for those of you interested in the uh, voiceover world. But he has a Sherlockian connection. He actually appeared as Sherlock Holmes. It was on The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd, episodes 708, 709, and 710. And to remember Stan Freeberg, we have a bit of a clip here of his appearance as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but you see, Watson, as clever as my cleverness was, Moriarty was clever enough to discover my cleverness. Clever. So imagine my surprise when this very morning he showed up at 221B Baker Street. Egad, what did he look like? Well, he's extremely tall and thin, his shoulders are rounded, and his two eyes are deeply sunken into his head. Does he have pale skin and greasy black hair? Well, yes, he does, Watson. How did you know? Just plain a hunch. Mm. Well, the moment he entered the room, he peered at me with great curiosity, then smiled at me and said, You don't know me, do you? You don't know me, do you? On the contrary, I know exactly who you are. Well, then, if you know who I am, then you know why I'm here. Oh, I know why you're here, and you know I know why you're here. Well, then, if you know that I know that you know why I'm here, then you must know that I know that you know that I know that you know why I'm here. Yes. I know. Uh, look, I didn't come here for witty banter. I'm sorry. Were you being witty? What? Uh, uh, look, I came here to tell you that I'm quite sure a smart man like yourself can see that if you think you're smart enough to bring destruction upon me, I am smart enough to do the same to you. You have paid me several compliments, Mr. Moriarty. Let me pay you one in return when I say that a man smart enough to see how smart I am is surely smart enough to know that I'm smart enough to outsmart one as smart as you. Oh, you think you're so smart, don't you? Hmm, I get by. There you go. <laughs> that, that's that's classic Stan Freeberg dialogue. Even though he didn't write it, uh, but it's just got his his fingerprints all over it. Well, he was a great innovator. He was one of the first to bring humor to advertising and demonstrate that engaging the audience by putting brands and products in funny situations could actually cause them to buy them. Yeah, go figure. And and remember and remember them and uh, and a really great radio. Innovator. Somewhere I have his. Uh, he, he had a short-lived radio series towards the very last days of radio, and somewhere I have all of those on CD. And every so often I take oh, them. Oh, that's out. great. 
that's very innovative. And, and then he is a Christmas um, – one of his little comedy routines was around Christmas. It was poking fun at the merchandising yes. of Christmas. Oh, it was a retelling of a Christmas story yeah. with, with, with uh, Scrooge as an advertising man. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I, that's I remember that funny. one still, yeah. Well, and uh, how appropriate that the uh, clip there was Holmes and Moriarty because uh, we're recording today on May 6th and, of course, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Uh, known as Star Wars Day all over the internet. But of course, we Sherlockians know May 4th as a much more significant event. Don't we? Yes, we do. But we mustn't tell some help? We mustn't tell anyone. <laughs> because if we tell them, then everyone will know. Well, that's true. It'll be our little secret. Okay. This is a pretty tight knit group, this podcast community. Our, our, our two listeners won't, uh, and, and by, by two listeners, I mean <laughs> you and I. We're, we're listening to it right now. <laughs> two listeners. We, we won't give it up. Uh, no, of course, May 4th was the day that, uh, Holmes and Moriarty met at the Reichenbach Falls in 1891. Mm. And, uh, the world lost Sherlock Holmes for almost a decade, uh, before he was resurrected, amazingly. But um and, and we later found out that this was the date that he used his Baritsu skills to send Moriarty toppling over the falls. Bartitsu, yes. Yeah, well, Bart- but the other thing is, oddly enough, after all of those years, as I understand it, mm. particularly because of some of the conversation online around this particular anniversary, after all those years, Holmes' bill at the English Hof is still unpaid. <laughs> and those people who say that really the reason for all of this was to get away from just the expense of having to pay for a couple of nights at that hotel, I, I think it's calumny. It's it's a, uh, a variation on the old dine and dash. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, I, and I guess this is where we say uh, I saw the Reichenbach, but I fell for you. That's right. Well, so that's by, Jer- uh, by Jerome Kern. I need indeed. to get the music written for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what else has been going on in the news? Well, uh, let's see. The uh, Sherlock, our pals at Sherlockology, oh, have yeah. uh, successfully hosted a hugely successful Sherlock conference at the end of last month. About. Thousands and thousands of people attended and had a chance to see um, Stephen Moffat and uh, stars from the show and some of the folks engaged in the production of the BBC Sherlock and more. Yeah, I know um, there was a, a, a tiered structure uh, in terms of pricing for tickets. Uh, you could actually buy, I think it was a two or three thousand pound ticket. And that would get you access to all of the stars, uh, mm-hmm. to be able to do a meet and greet with Benedict Cumberbatch, get his autograph. Um, I, I think the only, the only star of the program who wasn't there was Martin Freeman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had, uh, busy working. Uh, probably, or just disdainful of fans. Uh, oh, I don't think so. You, you never know. Um, but I, you know, these are, these are folks with very, very busy schedules, but you had Mrs. Hudson, you had Molly, you had, mm. um, you had Irene Adler, uh, you had Lestrade, you had Anderson. I mean, most of the, the major characters were there as well as, uh, Suver 2 and, 
mm. uh, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat, as you as you say. So I I understand that um, Martin Freeman makes a hobbit of dealing with things. Oh. So I think. <laughs> but the other thing is, if Mind you're going to buy, first of all, if you're going to buy a three thousand pound ticket, how are you going to carry it? But we, even wheel, even wheelbarrow. presuming you get it in there, Forklift. I think. There was a higher price ticket, I think, for 175,000 pounds. Yes. What you got was the um, uh, ability, I think, to be adopted by Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> and uh, a guest uh, with he and his wife on the next summer holiday and mentioned in his will. But I think part of the exploration of that, I think it came out somewhere online, was the mention was really just to hello, you know, and, and like to my fan Dave, hello. So it's not. Really? That's yeah, it? It's not all that significant, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I would be upset if that's how much I paid and that's all I got, but. Well, at a much more affordable price for only $22 a ticket, you can be part of the, uh, the premiere, the U.S. premiere of the 1916 silent film Sherlock Holmes. Starring William Gillette. It will make its debut on the U.S. shores at, as part of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival on May 31st. So uh, if you've managed to download and listen to this episode uh, between our release date of the 15th and the airing of the uh, the movie on the 31st, then congratulations. If you missed that window, well, we're here to tell you that the film premiered on the 31st in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping to have a correspondent on the ground there who will be uh, taking note of things and going to receptions and uh, generally um, making a spectacle of himself on behalf of IHOs, and we appreciate that. Um, but we'll bring you more on that as we learn of it. I was deeply disappointed not to be able to work that into my travel schedule. I, I had, I had planned to fly to San Francisco for this. But, uh, you know, I live in New Jersey, and the folks at United tell me that I have to have a ticket to get on one of those planes. <laughs> $175,000 ticket? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you get to be the pilot's son for that. I, I, just, I just thought it – I told them I thought it was poor sportsmanship on their <laughs> part. And they didn't – I think they hung up on me. Wow. Well, if you can pack yourself in a suitcase, you can go as carry-on luggage for only $35. That's an option. <laughs> Yeah, nobody from Wheelwell Express, though, is returning any of my calls. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I had planned to go, too, but it turns out that uh, the date that they chose for uh, the airing, that's my wife's birthday. And I try not to travel on uh, birthdays of immediate family members. So, Well, but but it doesn't – wouldn't Mindy appreciate the restoration of a silent film that you engineered in her honor? You would think. Yeah, you would think, and and yet the only person that would be getting the silent treatment after that <laughs> would be you. Would be me exactly. Would be you. Exactly. Well, you could tell her, you know, a large popcorn comes with it. I mean, that would be. Well, and she she would greet me with uh, or retort with, "I can get a large popcorn here on the couch. <laughs> See you later. Have a nice life." <laughs> Oh. Uh, yes, I hope I hope someday to introduce you to my second husband. <laughs> Well, speaking of movies, there yes. there are trailers out for Mr. Holmes, starring Ian McKellen. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the trailers yet, bro. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I'm looking forward to this picture. Yeah. I, and between the cinematography, which, you know, you can do marvels with um, 
with trailers. Uh, but the cinematography just looks grand. And uh, McKellen uh, in his makeup as uh, a 90-something uh, Holmes, as well as a 60-something Holmes and some of the flashbacks, I think they did a, a wonderful job. And, yeah, and this and this young actor who's uh is he making his debut with McKellen in this also seems to be really Yeah, Milo Milo Parker, I think his mm-hmm. name is. Yeah. So um that's good. And I, I don't know if you had a chance to see, but in the in the clips you've got Holmes, uh the ninety the something Holmes in a movie theater watching a black and white movie of Sherlock Holmes. And who is starring as Sherlock Holmes in that movie clip? Nicholas Rowe. Remember Nicholas Rowe? Oh, right. Of course, from Young Sherlock. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I wonder was... why they didn't use uh, Isla Norwood or somebody like that. <laughs> oh. I mean, they could have used a real, you know, a real silent arms. True. That's a nice... Um, nice touch. That's a nice, a nice tribute. And I, I, I actually... Um, it, was a, it was a talkie. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a silent... Film because oh, this, was, oh, oh. this would be Holmes in the 1940s. Oh, that's film. Fair. So I, well, well, you was, could have been watching Basil Rathbone. Well, true. <laughs> that would have been pretty funny. Well, but, no, it's, it's 1930. Is it is it in wartime or is it before wartime? Um, I think it was 47 when the novel was set. So post wartime. Oh, okay. right. But then you have to get into a fight with the Basil Rathbone Estate Limited and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're not as uh, understanding and forgiving as the Conan Doyle Estate Limited. <laughs> so, ah, uh, yes. And then uh, a couple more bits of news. Um, Sherlock BBC, the Christmas special. At least we assume it's going to be at Christmas time. Uh, Mark Gatiss confirmed that the setting will, in fact, be uh, in Victorian times, which that's a relief since we saw. Uh, photos, paparazzi photos of Cumberbatch and Freeman, uh, dressed in Victorian attire. Mm. It would have been a little awkward if it weren't set in Victorian times and they were dressed like that. Uh, but the actual setting, the, the date is 1895, mm. which only goes to show the, um, the, the, the degree of knowledge of the Sherlockian culture that the creators have. Mm-hmm. You know, always 1895. Of course, we've mentioned before that Watson's blog counter is stuck on 1,895 views. It was a nice in-joke. Um, and while there are a number of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes stories that do take place in 1895, it's really from the Vincent Sterrett poem 221B that we get, it is always 1895. And there is a new BSI Trust website. BSITrust.org. You can go there and see what the refreshed website looks like. And I believe also they've started to post the oral history project recordings. And the first one up there, I think, is an interview with Russell Merritt. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, um, you know, they're they're posting uh, by year. So you can look at, uh, for example, uh, the 1934 BSI dinner. Uh, the 1940 BSI dinner. They've got photographs there. Uh, they've got back issues of the uh, BSI Trust newsletter online. Uh, it's really going to be a wealth of information um, and and sharing some of the digital assets that the BSI Trust has to offer. So check it out at BSI Trust 
org. And just so you know, we'll have all of these, uh, all of these news items, uh, in, uh, the show notes so you can check that out. Uh, don't want to spend too much more time on links, but, um, if you, uh, haven't been to IHearOfSherlock.com lately, uh, there's lots of stuff up there to check out. Chris Redmond and, uh, Derek Belanger in particular have been posting up a storm. Uh, they've been submitting articles and I, uh, try to spread them out so, uh, they're, they're with us once a week, but you've got things like, um, St. George and, uh, the Sherlock Holmes connections, uh, that Chris looked out on St. George's Day. I looked at the true meaning of by Jove in Victorian culture and, uh, how that actually came to, uh, to pass in the Sherlock Holmes stories, including, of course, Jupiter descending, which is the, uh, phrase that Holmes used about Mycroft visiting Baker Street. And, um, you know, looking at the comparison of how Watson and Holmes talked or didn't talk about their feelings, uh, in, uh, the original stories versus how they deal with it in elementary. And, uh, some parallels of Middle East conflicts from Victorian times to now. Yeah. And, uh, also a wonderful link to the oldest video or the oldest film footage of London, mm. which is beautifully done. This is a six or seven minute segment you can view online, but they've gone back, folks have gone back and matched old black and white silent uh, film photography from even as far back as the late 19th century yeah, and show you that and then go back to the same locations with a modern camera and then show you side by side. Yeah, the same so angle. See, yeah, Trafalgar, Trafalgar Square 120 years ago, Trafalgar Square today and so on. And it's uh, yeah. fa- it shows you, you know, the folks of Holmes's time in their um, bowler hats and starched collars and horse-drawn cabs and then right next to the, the London of today. So it's worth looking at. Yeah. And, you know, in, in looking at that video footage, it struck me as to – well, first of all, what a historic city London is. And amazingly, how much, at least of those scenes, are still the same that were not affected by the Blitz mm. uh, in 1940. So we're fortunate. Mm. Hey, a couple of listener shout-outs. Uh, one, um, thank you to Brooke Hall, mm. who inspired us to write about the canon and exercise. Uh, she said that she was listening to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere as she was on her treadmill. Or as she was working out, and that led us to think about, well, who did get exercise in the canon, and and who shied away from it? Uh, so we did a little piece on on that. Yeah, but poor Brooke was not successful at running away from the program. <laughs> Good try, though. And of course, we have um, some very generous listeners uh, who have given to the cause who have uh, paid us cash money to help support I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Uh, Elizabeth Ong, all the way from the Philippines, uh, donated to us, as well as Mary Miller and James O'Leary, who are repeat offenders. And uh, we really appreciate that. This is, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot, but when you do donate to the show, it helps with um, all of the costs associated with uh, running the show, you know, a professional level accounts that we have to have on certain websites, mm. uh, hosting charges, 
um, the email newsletter, all of these things cost money. And in addition to our regular official sponsors, um, our listeners help out from time to time like this as well. And we yeah. wanted to say a thank hearty you. thank you. Absolutely. We really appreciate that. Elizabeth, Mary, and James. We do very much. And even a spare roll of quarters. You know, when we have to drive down to the editing studio, uh, you never have enough quarters for the parking meter. And that roll of quarters really comes in handy, even if Scott or I have got to go down and uh, put another quarter in every hour. Well, and frankly, when I'm walking around the city of Detroit, uh, I prefer as my weapon of choice to have a sock full of pennies. <laughs> you know, that, that usually keeps people at bay. It's like a modern-day mace, really. Uh, without the spray, you know, you can get away with carrying around a sock full of pennies without having a permit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Must make it hard to walk though. I mean, isn't that uncomfortable? To... <laughs> well, I put them in both socks, so I even. Oh, that. okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Oh. Here comes that guy, Monty, again. Get out the metal detector. <laughs> well, I, limp. I seem to recall. <laughs> We were in Boston recently, and uh, we were at the Speckled Band. Yes. And ostensibly, I'm... while we threatened people in the intro uh, with the name of the show, the Speckled Band of Boston, we have yet to really talk about it. Well, now that that's out of the way, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> oh. Well, you have um, you have a little bit of uh, of, of uh, journalistic work you'd like to share with us, if I'm we, not mistaken. We do. It was a wonderful meeting. It was the 75th annual meeting of the Speckled Band of Boston. It's um, one of these grand organizations like the Sons of the Copper Beaches and others whose traditions have not changed since these organizations were founded decades and decades ago. As I say, it's the 75th anniversary of the band. And uh, it, it's um, – well, what can I, I can, really I, say? I can interject here. You know, the, the thing that's always struck me about the Speckled Band is that, and, and it feels like, you know, when, when you're at the Tavern Club, it feels like it's been there forever. Mm. Uh, and as we'll hear later in the show, that has not been, uh, the setting. It's been the setting for the last 30 years or so, mm. but it's steeped in tradition and to, to the point where the menu is always the same. Mm-hmm. As I said, the venue is the same. Heck, even grace is always the same. You know, I mean, yes, we have toasts and the toaster, while they're the, to the same people and, and they are varied by who says them and uh, who gives them and, and uh, how they're written. Grace is, that is script. I mean, that, that is scripted as part of our, uh, regular occurrence. Yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a comforting ritual and we wanted, uh, we want to give you a, a peek inside. The Speckle Band of Boston. And so for the next few minutes, let us take you there. Boylston Place is an ordinary alley in Boston, a bit run down. But tonight there is something unusual. A purple flag with a golden snake flutters from a flagpole on an old brick building. And the building itself remains anonymous, for no sign identifies the tavern club. You have to know where it is. 
Since 1884, its deceptively ordinary door has opened for Mark Twain, Rudyard Kipling, Oliver Wendell Holmes, John Singer Sargent, Booker T. Washington, Winston Churchill, Paderewski, among many others. And for these last decades, it has opened as well for the members and guests of the Speckled Band of Boston. They gather here today to celebrate their 75th anniversary. Once inside, you are reminded that the 19th century boasted many innovations, but bright lights wasn't one of them. The club is dark, wood-paneled, and is about as well-lit today as it was when Chester A. Arthur was president of the United States. After cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, the band and their guests ascend to the second floor of the building for the dinner and the program. Welcome to the 75th anniversary of the Speckle Band of Boston. There are toasts, of course. Keeper Dan Poznanski toasts Queen Victoria, Elizabeth II, and the founders of the band. Dean Fairbrother singles out friendship in his toast to Holmes and Watson. I think Willie William S. Gilbert sort of hit the tee when he said, the sacred bound of friendship are paramount. Gentlemen, raise your glasses to Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John H. Watson. May the sacred ties of friendship be paramount. Tom Francis and Glenn Maranker sing the praises of the woman and the Stoner sisters, respectively. Not even Grimsby Roylet is forgotten as Dan Poznanski introduces the traditional backhanded salute. Our next toast in this 75th anniversary year is from our loyal executive member, without which this would never happen. Toast to Grimesby Royalot of dubious memory from Richard Oaken. And to Royalot, who, whose hurts were his own just desserts, we reserve our annual hiss. A challenging quiz comes between dinner and dessert. This year it was created by our own Scott Monte. And here are the first three questions as read by Dan Poznanski. As the Speckle Band celebrates our own diamond anniversary, we turn to numbers and jewelry for our quiz. Number one. There were 97 emeralds in the great Agra treasure. But what two other pieces of emerald jewelry appear in the canon? And in which stories are they? Number two. How many barrels make up the barreled carnet? Number three. In which story? Does Holmes exhibit his 
amethyst snuff box. After the quiz, the Musgrave ritual is offered. And now, while you're working your way through that very easy quiz, Dan Poveri will give us the Musgrave ritual in Latin. Cui erat. Cui erat. Qui fuit mensis. Ubi fuit sol. Ubi fuit umbra. Quo modo pedibus mensum est. Donabimus Quam obram nobis demanda sunt. And then by Dean Fairbrother in English. Poker Richard Olkin, the BSI's own Bob Carruthers delivers the business report and reads some words of greeting. Uh, the first order of uh, or the poker's report is the business meeting, and as usual, there is no business meeting. I have several announcements to make. A number of Speckle Band members attended the BSI birthday weekend festivities in New York City, and although no members of the Speckle Band received an investiture this year, I am happy to congratulate our executive committee member, Glenn Maranker, on his daughter Emily's investiture as Lady Hattie St. Simon. I would now like to read several telegrams which have come to us. Let's see. From Elysian Fields to the... Tavern, the Speckle Band at the Tavern Club. Congratulations on 75th anniversary. Stop. Time you left me alone. Stop. Just saw Doyle and he agrees. Regards, Morley. Also from Elysian Fields to the Speckle Band at the Tavern Club, Boston. Curses on 75 years of calumny. Stop. You have not heard the last of me. Stop. Roy Lott. <laughs> and finally, from Philadelphia. Ah, oh, you thought Elysian Fields was tough. From Philadelphia to, to the Speckle Band of Boston at the Tavern Club. The Sun, salute the band on your anniversary. Stop. Congratulations on maintaining our traditions for 75 years. Stop. Hope warm fraternal greetings melt remaining snow on Boylston Street. <laughs> Regards, Bob Katz, Head Mastiff. 
I want to, before we go upstairs for the feast, I just want to thank you all for um, coming. Some of you have come quite far, some people from uh, Toronto and from California and from Washington State. Uh, Mike Whalen, the head of the Baker Street Irregulars, is here from Indiana. And uh, Terry, our last year's winner, came up from New York. We're just happy to have so many of you with us tonight. Thank you. And the winner of the quiz is announced. I forgot that I have one more, one more wonderful opportunity to address you, and that is to let you know that we have a winner of the band quiz silver ball, and it is Greg Derrick. We'll give you the ball upstairs because it is upstairs. His score was a point of two or two more than anyone else's score. After dinner and a few verses of Aunt Clara, which we will spare you, the band moves to the theater on the top floor of the building. Three papers are usually offered. Delivering a paper to the band is a requirement for membership. This year, Tom Bridges speaks about the genealogy of the Baskervilles. Al Williams concentrates on the great hiatus and gives an analysis of Holmes' travels. And Greg Darak addresses the problem of Mrs. Turner in The Landlady's Mystery. And the winner? And we believe uh, that all three papers were great. Uh, Greg Darak is the winner. And I'd like to point out that as far as we know from the records that we have, he's only the third person to win both the Quiz Bowl and the Sherlock Holmes Bowl the same night, the others being Glenn Moranker, who's here with us, and Mark Wellington, who has passed on. Thank you. One of the many things that is special about the band is the prayer for the speckled band of Boston, written years ago by T. Franklin Grady. It includes this wish, that generations to come will join the never-ending throng who have followed, emulated, and loved the two old comrades we honor here tonight and grant that they will one day take our places at this table and preserve our traditions and fellowship. After 75 years, the traditions and fellowship of the Speckled Band of Boston seem brighter than ever. this over, and perhaps for the best. Carl Watson, bring your pistol. That's great. You know, it's funny, and and even the audio clip like that doesn't necessarily belie what it's like to be there. Um, And and each, each science society around the world has its own unique feel and its own, uh, its own sense of tradition. So we would encourage you that if you 
don't yet belong to one, seek out a group in your uh, local area. And we'll have a link to uh, to how you can find your local Scion Society if there is one. And uh, I believe on a past show we talked about founding your own as mm-hmm. well. So we'll have a link to that as well. Good. Well, this is a great time to uh, to pause and recognize our sponsors, our official sponsors, that is. Oh, official sponsors. Yes. Are they still in business? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully we haven't driven them out of business yet. If you are a fan of Sherlockian scholarship, there are two great places to go. One of them, of course, is the Wessex Press. You can find them at wessexpress.com. Uh, they are... One of the places where you can find not only pastiches, uh, but you can find uh, real deep scholarship like the Sherlock Holmes Reference Library by Les Klinger, a uh, 10-part series there that you can buy individually or as a 10-pack and uh, get the notes and annotations that are even deeper than what Les put into the annotated Sherlock Holmes. So check that out if you want to dive deep. And, of course, the latest publication from Wessex Press, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle and the Newspapers, Volume 1. This is the beginning of what will be a multi-volume series from Matthias Bostrom and Matt Laffey, looking at the popular press in the time of Conan Doyle and what the response was like to the Sherlock Holmes story. So kind of taking you through what it was like to be living in the time and reading about Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes in the newspapers. Yeah. So check that out at wessexpress.com. Yeah, really worth looking at. Mm. And the Baker Street Journal. If you have not got at least two subscriptions to the Baker Street Journal, stop right now and uh, get one. It is the leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship and has been for almost as long as the Speckled Band has been in existence. And is uh, an absolute essential part of any good Sherlockian's uh, consumption of content. Indeed, and there is a um, a new publication that is coming out from the BSI Press uh, about the exhibition of uh, Sherlock Holmes at the London at the Museum of London. Uh, this is a joint publication done uh, through the Quartering Press uh, with the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and the BSI. Um, but it is the companion book to that wonderful Sherlock Holmes exhibition uh, at the Museum of London. So go over to BakerStreetJournal.com and check that out. Yeah. Friends, with today's health concerns, you can forget about three-pipe problems. It's tough to find somewhere to enjoy even one favorite briar. That's why you need the Sherlock Holmes brand smoking jacket. Just zip the patented hood and leg covering, connect the hose to any low-power vacuum cleaner, and smoke in peace. And it's the only smoking jacket that delivers the three C's. Complete calabash consumption. Harken back to Baker Street with the Sherlock Holmes brand smoking jacket at your dealers today. 
You know, we really have to talk with dealers about uh, providing some uh, repair and parts for the Sherlock Holmes smoking jacket <laughs> because uh, I, I heard you say if you, you hook up your hose to uh, the thing, if you're going to hook up a hose, make sure it's an eye hose, friends. <laughs> That's right. You need that eye connection for your eye hose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the firewire connection. Uh, make sure it's all hooked up. Yes. Ah, well, that's great. Well, you know, we, we brought you inside the speckled band there and you heard the dulcet, uh, I don't know if dulcet's the right term, maybe gravelly, uh, tone. Characteristic. The characteristic tone of the keeper, Dan Poznanski. Well, we had an opportunity to sit down with Dan uh, at a hotel in Cambridge the morning after the Speckled Band 75th anniversary dinner and talk with him a little bit about uh, not only his association with the band, but his association with Sherlock Holmes. Dan, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you. Thanks for having me this morning. (laughs) Thank you for having uh, for hosting breakfast this morning. Well, we had a good time last night. We did. Speckled Band. And I want to talk to you about the Speckled Band in a minute, but yeah. why don't we start by um, telling telling me how you first met Sherlock Holmes. Well, I thought all this while when I was giving these papers you were listening, but I can see... <laughs> <laughs> that you weren't really. Listening. I was listening. Our and, listeners and, and join have not the crowd. had. Join the crowd. Not many that's, people were listening. Well, some of them were sleeping. So that's yeah. uh, and that, that was not your fault yeah. at all. Oh right? no, that's right. But the first paragraph, or the first couple of pages of just about every talk that I've given, simply describes my family growing up in the Bronx and my father, especially, who had a very big influence in my life. My father was a reader. He read in Russian, he read in Hebrew, whatever. And he did have a couple of volumes of Sherlock Holmes on the shelf. But he was the person that was responsible for introducing me to Holmes. And then, as I got to know more about him and became a member of the Baker Street Irregulars... What year was that? I think it was like 75 or 76, I'm okay. not sure. Um, it was before I was a member of the Speckled Band, actually. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That, that seems uh, almost yeah. backwards because usually people, yeah. uh, they make their way through the local societies and then yeah. they... Well, the Speckled Band and the BSI were... Uh, Introduced to me by George Burroughs. You remember George? I, I know the name well. I don't think we ever met. Oh, okay. Well, he was my mentor in the field of Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And he was a memorable character. I never knew it at the time, but he was. He was indeed. He was uh, one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union, along with Roger Baldwin. Wow. And he was a cop at Harvard when I got to Harvard it was in the very late 60s okay and he was a cop and uh, you know Vietnam was going strong and uh, he was involved in trying to keep the peace 
and just one memorable occasion he had to arrest one of the young co-eds and it was memorable not for the reason that you might think it was memorable because she bit him on the leg and it made the papers of course and that bite was with him for the rest of his life I'll bet it was he was uh, Orson Bean's father really? yeah and I remember Orson very well sure his original name was Dallas Burroughs Dallas Burroughs and he took the name Orson Bean I won't go into the details of his early family life but it wasn't pretty let's say that (laughs) and he took the name Orson from Orson Welles Mm -hmm. and not the actor but there was a theater in Cambridge named the Orson Welles really? yeah right on Mass Ave and Bean of course was for the Bean of Boston Mm -hmm. and he started making a living all by himself by doing magic tricks in Harvard Square his father wasn't around so anyhow that was sort of the beginning of it but the real beginning of Holmes was due to my father and it's in every paper that I've ever given uh, because it seems a strange thing and people started asking me well how did you get interested in Holmes so I decided to include it in every single Now, was your father's uh, Sherlock Holmes volume, was that in English or Russian? No, Russian. Or was it, so you started reading Sherlock Holmes in Russian. Right, I did. That's well amazing. other uh, Russian writers. And once again, if you had only listened when I was speaking, <laughs> you would have seen there's a sentence in one of the, in those things that said, as I was growing up, Dostoevsky, Gogol, Turgenev, they were all my companions of my youth. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how it all started. That's great. That is great. And then I, uh, because of George Burroughs, he invited me to a meeting of the Baker Street Irregulars. Now, was George a member of the Speckled Band at the yes, time? Yes, yes. And he didn't invite you to the Speckled Band? No, he invited me to the Baker Street Irregulars. Wow. And then he invited me to and, and then he figured you were worthy for the speckled man. Well, that. I don't know what he thought. But the BSI was spectacular. Mm. Because I sat for years, literally for years, at the same table with Bliss Austin on one side, Isaac Asimov on the other side, and uh, the uh, keeper, uh, Julian Wolfe in the middle wow and it produced many many memorable occasions I can imagine some of which are fit for print (laughs) others aren't well fortunately this is audio it's not print yeah Uh, yeah that's what you say now (laughs) but I know that this will get into something but that's okay I don't mind although if you looked on the net you'll find very little about me yeah that's true especially about my Harvard days is it by design yeah Why is that? Why? Because I just don't want these things to follow me forever. <laughs> it's and, your legacy, though. Well, I don't see it that well, way. Well, you've got you've got a very I'd see uh, important it. legacy with the the BSI. Now. Yeah. Well, 
I enjoy homes, have always enjoyed homes, since I was a little kid. And that was growing up in the Bronx, and that was very different then. So you mentioned uh, Bliss Austin. We had Sonia Featherston yeah, she on the show me. Yeah. a couple of episodes ago, and she did a yeah, the wonderful book, Prince of the Realm. Yeah. She gave me a copy. And and she, she interviewed you uh, for uh, some of that, right? She did. Yeah. T- and tell she me. actually listened to me. That, that, it was <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Why would anybody do that? I have no idea. I have no idea either. Well, we're hoping, uh, we're hoping some of our uh, loyal listeners will, uh, will tune in here. So um, what's, a, what's a Bliss Austin memory that, that you have? Well, I think the most interesting was after the BSI meetings mm-hmm. we used to go to a little club in Grand Central Station called Under the Clock Okay, that was the name of it Under the Clock and it was a socializing kind of thing um, there were men there women and uh, Bliss and I always went after the meetings to under the clock. We'd have a drink. And Bliss was actually a good dancer. Was he really? Which I know nobody knew. And he used to dance with women under the clock. I was not a good dancer. I was going to ask. <laughs> but I enjoyed the occasions tremendously. And, of course, Bliss came, became one of my best friends. So... It was uh, very memorable. That was really uh, a memorable occasion. Was that's nice. And it's, you know, it's nice when you can weave those informal traditions into mm-hmm. you know that that kind of event. And he, of course, he was a great Sherlockian, so we hit it off immediately. He liked rare books. I liked rare books. Yeah. And he had some great homeless things, and I had a few interesting things. So uh, we had a good time. Now, after Bliss passed on and his collection went to Lehigh University, mm-hmm. the most unlikely of recipients of a Sherlockian collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they weren't a real recipient. No, no, they weren't. They were just kind of a holding area exactly. until... Bliss did not know that. He thought that they were going to be at Lehigh forever, and he had a connection to Lehigh. And, uh, of course, after he died and they got the collection, they invited me over. I looked at the collection and told them about it and this and that. And next thing I know, they were selling the collection. Hmm. Sad. And this is what happens sometimes. And, of course, it gives me thought myself and Glenn Maranka himself. I mean, all of us have these things. And we worry constantly about what's going to happen. Yeah. Some people in the rare books world, they enjoy the collecting. They don't really care what happens afterwards. In fact, the most common excuse for getting rid of your stuff is saying, oh, I want someone else to have the fun of collecting it. But that is complete baloney. And uh, in my case, I've spent, you know, the better part of... 50 or 60 years looking for 
some of the rarest things, some of which I have found, others I have never found, and what are you I'm still looking. What are you still looking for at this point? Oh, I can't say that. Okay, so let's go at it the other way. What do you have in your collection that you're the most proud of? Oh, I have um, a lot of stuff related to Harold Bell, H.W. Bell. Mm-hmm. He was a speckled band guy and for a long time was the chairman, as they called it in those days, of the band. And eventually he died, and he left in his instructions that the speckled band have the first shot at buying his collection. That's the way he did it. Okay. And someone, and we don't know who, stepped up to the plate and purchased his collection. In its entirety? In its entirety. And then uh, let the uh, Houghton Library at Harvard have it, but not as theirs. But so they just they house it, basically. Yeah. Right, that's right. And okay. take care of it. Yeah. And that collection is still there today. And now since we have the uh, the archives of the of the Baker Street Regulars there, that has added to it somewhat, although completely different things. Right. Um, and uh, I never met Harold. And I regret it, but he died many years before I came yeah, around. Yeah, back in the 40s, right? I think he died in the 40s. Yeah, I think so. Um, and uh, it's just a subject I'm very interested in. And Peter Ricardo and myself are collaborating with some help from Glenn on a book about... H.W. Bell's life. Oh, fantastic. It's mostly Peter Ricardo. But I have had a little hand in it. Any idea when that uh, book is going to be? Several years, at least. It's got to be a lot of work putting all that together. Well, it's been six years now. Wow. We started. And Peter Ricardo and I have visited many sites as you might expect, including uh, the gravesite of the family, which is in New York. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, it's just... Bell was quite a guy, and eventually people will get to see this book. Yeah. His brother was amazing. His brother was the guy who uh, deciphered this telegram called the Zimmerman telegram uh, and uh, it helped lead to the downfall wow uh, the Axis yeah. powers yeah. yeah 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 that's amazing Barbara Tuckman wrote the book and Barbara Tuckman was a scholar when I worked at the New York Public Library I used to get her books okay and uh, she was a great scholar it's wonderful she's dead now too um Anything other than Bell that uh, yeah, kind of, of excites you? No, a lot of Doyle material yeah. and stuff like that. Now, I've seen you present some items from your collection at various meetings. Yeah. Friends of Irene Adler, mostly. Yeah. And it seems like you take such great joy in sharing your treasures with other people. And, and 
Mm-hmm. You know, when we talked with Sonia about Bliss, yeah. same thing was true. He opened yeah. up his home. He did. Wanted other people to see this and yeah. and to actually touch it too. You yeah. invite people to come up and hold yeah. the book and yeah. leaf through it. Exactly. So well, because people don't know about these things, but I mean, it all relates to Doyle. But there were many great members of the BSI who had uh, never met Doyle. Right. But like Franklin Roosevelt and other people who were members of the BSI, Harry Truman. And uh, these people were interested in Holmes. So when people say, why are you interested in Sherlock Holmes, it seems like such an odd thing. Well, that's simply because they don't really know me. This is something that is very close to my heart and my mind and still remains there. And I have found a really good friend in Glen Moranka. And he was my really first protege when he was a student at MIT Graduate School. He had just gotten married and I visited him and his wife Kathy and they lived in this little hovel in Cambridge. He was going to school, he had no money. And uh, we made a life out of it, you know. He went on to his things and I went on to my things. You know, I never dreamed of owning any property or anything. I was, uh, I came to Harvard quite by accident. It was a guy that I met at Columbia when I was in graduate school. He was uh, looking for people at Harvard. He was uh, headhunting, if you will, in today's terminology. I was not interested. And what were you doing at Columbia? What was your uh, master's? Uh, master's degree in uh, library science and information science. And I probably was the first person at Harvard ever to use a computer and to spread it. And one of my responsibilities was getting Harvard twisting their arm to use a single plastic card so that they could take books out of the library and use it as an ID card anyplace else. Mm. And that was fun. And also... You know, it was a fun time for me because most of the administration didn't want it. And when I hear those words, it makes me move ahead. And that's the same thing with Sherlock Holmes, you know. That's great. Neither Sherlock nor I really cared too much what people thought or didn't think. But we gave it our best shot. Yeah. And Sherlock always did. That's great. You know, as the second cab, third cab, the sixth cab that you have there. You know, was, Holmes was quite the character. Yeah. An invention, but nevertheless. True. An invention. True of, to life. Of some repute. Yeah. So, you mentioned that George Burroughs brought you to the BSI. Mm-hmm. Was he... Also, and the Speckled Band. He's the one that brought you to the Speckled Band. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we just celebrated the 75th anniversary of the Speckled Band last True. night. Um, tell me about... And I'm like the character in Gilbert and Sullivan. 
you know, he polished up the handle so carefully that now he's the ruler of the Queens and Navy. I guess so. I, I think no one, including myself, ever expected that I would be the keeper of the Speckle Band. And it was the furthest, furthest thing from my mind. And I met some wonderful people, Dev Gazzaldi and George. These people became lifelong friends. So what, what was the Speckled Band like? And I guess it would have been in the mid-70s when you... It was you more reactionary, more what do you conservative. Mean by that? Conservative. Okay. To use a word that I don't know how you can get more conservative than it is now. Oh, well, it's not even close. Well, what do you, you mean know, by conservative? Remember, there was a person that you knew... Uh, he was a member of the Friends of Irene Adler, Dirk Stroik. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, the Speckle Band threw him out. Why? Because, yeah, because of the McCarthy era and because Stirk, Stroik would not move one iota from his principles. He was a communist? Well, he was not a communist. Okay. But... He was in favor of what the communists were trying to okay. do. And, uh, and so he was investigated by the McCarthy yes, uh, organization? Investigated uh, by them the and thrown out by both MIT and the Speckle Band. I know, the Speckle Band threw yeah. out. As a and when Constable came to be the keeper, he asked me if I could... He knew that strike came to the Friends of Ari Nadler. He didn't come for any po- political reason. He mm-hmm. loved Sherlock Holmes. Right. Was a great contributor to the Baker Street Rights as many years ago. So uh, John asked me if I could see my way clear to getting Stroik back into the fold, the speckled man. And I had a wonderful dinner with him and visited him and his wife in Belmont. And he told me these really immortal words, as far as I'm concerned, immortal as anything Holmes ever said. They didn't want me Zen, and I don't want Zen now. (laughs) His exact words spoken exactly. He was a Dutchman with a lot of honors. He graduated from the University of Leiden. It's great. He wrote a wonderful book, which most people don't read today, called Yankee Science in the Making. Hmm. And it was all about Yankee ingenuity. Mm -hmm. I mean, long before it was fashionable or anything else. And he was a great mathematician. He certainly was. Yeah, I remember every year at the Friends of Irene Adler, he'd stand up and extemporaneously give a toast to Professor Moriarty. Different every time. Usually about the Irish... And he was a big uh, follower of the Fenian movement. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, those are the kind of people that I had the good fortune to run into and mm-hmm. then become lifelong friends yeah. of. And that was all it was, was just friendship. And where was the uh, where was the Speckled Band dinner held in those days? Well, the first dinner I went to was held at the Tennis and Racket Club. Okay. And that would be on Boylston Street, mm-hmm. and I believe it's still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it eventually moved over to the present location, exactly. the, the Tavern Club. And been there ever since. Yeah. So it's been at the Tavern Club for, I don't know, 30 years, anyhow. Yeah. Uh, I remember 
my first dinner, which was 1992, I think. I met you. Yeah. Jim Duvall made sure I met you and oh, Jim Duvall, that you autographed my fourth cab yeah. as I bought that night. And um, Very nice guy. It, it, I know. He was a great loss. Um, we had Sherlock Holmes Port that evening from Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those were the days when you could uh, get away with smoking cigars after yeah. dinner. Yeah. The and keeper. by the way, Bliss Austin was a great cigar smoker. Was he really? Yeah. And you both sat with was Isaac I. Asimov? Yes. And who was course, a non-smoker. Not only a non-smoker, but it was Isaac's idea to put the matter to a vote. Oh, and he put, he made Jim Dunning, uh, not Jim Dunning, the Julian Wolf, Julian Wolf yeah. put the matter to a vote of the people that was at the Regency Hotel. And Isaac Asimov got voted down tremendously. It was one of his great losses. He didn't have many losses. That's true. And he had a beautiful voice and a lovely hairdo. I don't know who his barber was, but it was incredible. Uh, anyhow, um, yeah, cigar smoking was... And, and John Constable was the keeper at the time. I remember him... Uh, coming around with the speckled band bowl being filled with champagne yep. and ladling it out, serving I, I each asked one of the last members. night, and they didn't want to do it. Why not? Because they felt that I would drop it or something. Oh. And they're quite right, you know. <laughs> I'm very shaky these days. Hey, look, I'd be happy to help yeah. next year if you want to go back to that tradition. Okay. You can you can uh, supervise it. Yeah. But I always thought that was a nice gesture of the keeper who is literally responsible for keeping the traditions of exactly. this august organizational life. That's why called the keeper. Going around and serving each yeah. member. Yeah. And, and uh, I've, I've learned in my, uh, in my time, certainly in my time at Ford with Alan Mulally, mm-hmm. that leadership is really about serving others. And it is. When you're in a position of, when you see someone who's in a position of leadership, like a keeper, for yeah. example, you don't usually think about that. Yeah. And that that gesture to me always struck true. Yeah. Well, John was very big on that. Very big. Yeah. On keeping things pretty much the same. Yeah. And I'm dedicated to keeping John and his memory and work alive. So we'll see how it goes. Well, the Speckled Band is um, in a minority in that it's one of the few societies left that is Stag. single sex, right? But there was one instance mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. where that tradition was uh, tampered with, shall we say. Yeah. You know anything about that? Well, I do know some things, but some things cannot be told. <laughs> Except I will tell you one incident. And that was the keeper of the band at that time. I think he was called the chairman. Uh, got word about this incident. And his exact words, you remember these things because they are in your brain. His exact words were he had just received this paper telling him what was going on. It was on. A, a note from somebody yes. in the room? Yeah, okay. Yes, who shall be nameless. A moron. In any case, he read the note, and we were just in between papers. 
I was not yet a member. And, uh, but I had that streak in me. And uh, he said, I have just been informed that there is a cuckoo in our midst. We trust that it will never be repeated. And that was that all he ever said. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably in the uh, in the Boston Brahmin tradition of not wanting to make a big scene out of exactly. things. Exactly. Yet making it clear where you stood. Yeah, and when he died, I uh, visited his apartment. Uh, it was on uh, the hill. Up on Beacon Hill? Yeah, Beacon Hill. He had a house there. And he had remarried, and his wife had a house on Nantucket, and he had a house on Beacon Hill. And he was quite the character. He, he, uh, who, who was that? Uh, that, that uh, the chairman at the time. Was it Waite or Mather? Yes. Waite. Dick Waite? Dick Waite. Okay. And his last meeting, I sat on one side, and George Burroughs sat on the other side. And his last meeting as keeper, he was tiny. And he had a uh, Filipino houseboy who carried him. A Filipino houseboy had uh, Bermuda shorts on, of all different colors. And he carried him up the stairs. Wow. He was very frail. And George was giving the toast to uh, the evil uncle. Grimsby Grimsby Roylott, sure. And George had had a little bit too much to drink, and he went on and on and on. I think the toast lasted a half hour. (laughs) And here was Dick Wade, this tiny little guy, saying as loud as he could, which was not loud, George, 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 (laughs) trying to get him to stop. Of course, George paid no attention. And he went on and on and on. And finally, everybody broke into the hiss. And uh, and that was it. I mean, George, George. As I say, some of these memories are just, you know, I never think of these things, but there it was. I know, I know. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I don't think you were at that meeting. No, that was before my... I didn't know George, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Dick Waite was a lawyer at Choate Hall and Stewart. Mm. And he was the senior partner. And you know that suit that you like so much that Constable has? (laughs) Well, he wore one of those. Really? Every time he went to court, Dick Waite wore morning like a Like a a British barrister. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. And he was the last one. Okay. So so after uh, Dick Waite, then John Constable was made... Keeper. No, I think Jim Kenny Jr. was made keeper. Okay. And then Constable. Constable, okay. And then myself. Okay. Now, I, I came in during the Constable years. That's right. And uh, I re- recall, just until very recently, you know, because you just took over the helm what, in the last two years, That's right? right. That we would always have to wait for Dr. Constable's schedule mm-hmm. before we could determine when the Speckled Band meeting would mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Um, because he was a pretty busy guy. Yeah, he was. He right. was a great plastic surgeon, traveled all over the world, mostly pro bono work. Right. 
but he was also attached to Harvard. Right. And, for example, he liked and still does, he loves uh, orchids and birds and things like that. And he would go to the ends of the earth to see these things with his wife. And I remember he asked me about a particular book once. Could I find it? And uh, I said, well, I'll try my best. I can't guarantee anything. It took me about eight years and I finally found the book. Wow. And I gave it to him as a present. I thought he was going to faint away. <laughs> he got it for the princess of the royal family of Nepal. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. No, not Nepal. Bhutan. Okay, Bhutan. Right. So, that was... Constable. Yeah, he's quite a guy. He and, is uh, a guy. Very, uh, very peculiar way of speaking. He got that noticed. from his father, and he has a brother who is almost his twin. I know. Yeah. Giles, right? Yeah, and speaks very much the same way. And uh, his father was uh, at the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Mm. Big, yeah, big big Boston Brahmin family there. I, yeah. You'll like this story. I was in graduate school taking a course at the Boston University School of Public Health. Okay. The course was uh, insurance and the healthcare industry. And it was mm-hmm. taught by Peter Hyam, who was the commissioner of insurance yeah. for Massachusetts for yeah. many years. And he was explaining how, in Massachusetts here at least, the commissioner was responsible for setting the rates of reimbursement for mm-hmm. the physicians. And he said, one one year I was at a, uh, a dinner of uh, surgeons, and I gave my speech. They were respectful, not enthusiastic, but respectful. And the chairman got up there, and he said, uh, while your rates are not generous, they are adequate. And at that point, I raised my hand from the back of the room, and I said, was that John Constable by any chance? And he he turned white, and his jaw dropped, and he said, how could you possibly figure that out? I said, that's that's his style of speaking. Your rates are not generous, but they are adequate. Right, exactly. And then we we talked about that afterwards, but yeah. Uh, he's he's been uh, quite an influence to the band these many years. Yeah, he has. And and as you say, it's uh, it, it's a great honor to have been passed the mantle yeah. to be the keeper. Well, I consider it both an honor, but more of a responsibility. Mm. And uh, other members of the band who have long since retired. Uh, you have no idea how many letters I got. What type of letters? People saying, well, it's about time, blah, 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 blah. You'll make a wonderful keeper, and this and that. And I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it as, you know, there's Constable, and there's me. <laughs> and that's it. And hopefully I will keep it going as long as I can. I hope so. Until I can't do it anymore. I hope so. But last night, having him sing Irene was really amazing. Yeah. 
they got him a chair with arms, I noticed. Yeah. They and, took good care uh, of him. Yeah. And you were at the keyboard once again. I was at the keyboard. That, that getting band. weaker and weaker oh. every year. <laughs> Fortunately, it's not very uh, a very difficult tune to pick up. No. Uh, and then Al made that comment. Oh, he had the original manuscript. And it said, Allegro con brio. But of You're course, more of an andante kind of guy. Yeah, but of course, Al, it was all baloney. Because he doesn't have the original manuscript. Because I know who does. And that person wrote the book about how Aunt Clara came to be written. And found the original composers of Aunt Clara. So... Who is that? You can't say that? Well, if the book was, has been written... Yes, well, the book can't be found today. <laughs> but it has been written. And uh, they were a couple. And they were vaudevillians, actually, from the 30s, I think. Wow. Yeah. And the... Um, well, Aunt Clara has a long history. as subject for another occasion. But it's a very long history. goes all the way to Washington, D.C., and here and there. But in any case, this guy found this couple and found the manuscript. And so I knew Al wouldn't have it. But he said they, of course, wrote it in Allegro con brio. So I, I don't know if you saw I went back to the piano, and I sped up the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I said, how's that, Al? <laughs> he said, oh, I didn't know you knew that. But Al's a funny guy. He is. There's a, there's a lot of great characters in that organization. Yeah. I think you know. he's a member of the Rhode Island group. Right, right. And I know Bert uh, actually spends a lot of time uh, with the Cornish Horrors as well. That's it, yeah. 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 And for a long while, that Rhode Island group had a representative whose name escapes me. He was a member of the Speckle Band. Um, what, in the early days, yeah, you mean? Yeah. yeah is, back, is that back when they were the Dancing Men of Providence? That's the guy. Yeah. yeah. I forget who it was myself, but yeah. Yeah, they were the Dancing Men. Yeah. And he wrote a talk on the Dancing on the dancing. Okay. Band. And I think it's in the second or third camp. Probably. So. I'll have to go back and check my yeah. copy. So... So the, the Speckled Band is now releasing the sixth cab. Correct. Uh, it started, this is a series of publications that are uh, taken from papers that members submit. Correct. And they are assembled and edited into book form. Correct. It started with not the first cab, but the second cab, right? Yes, as far as the title goes. Yes. But so the, the second cab. the admonition in the stories was... Not the first cab, nor the second That's cab. That's true. And somehow the second the cab, cab hit. And uh, Jim Keddy Jr. was responsible for starting the cabs. And the um, introduction to the second cab was written by Vincent Starrett. Mm. And he pointed out that... You shouldn't take Doyle, this. <laughs> Doyle never said... Don't take the second cab. He was not that specific. Right. Saying, he take said, don't take the first, first nor, nor the, the second. And it was in the story, The Final Problem, right. when he was giving directions to Dr. Watson. Yeah. 
So um, the band produced the second, third, fourth, fifth best of uh, cabs, and now the sixth cab is coming out. That's correct. Uh, and this is expected to uh, to be published in 2015? Yes. Well, no, 2016. 2016, okay. Yeah. Probably the spring of 2016. Okay. Maybe for in time for the next meeting. Okay, great. Now the, be the spring of 2016. Okay. Now, the previous cabs, at least the fourth and fifth, from what I recall, had a run of 300, I think? Some did. But these, there will only be 75. 75 for our 75th anniversary. Exactly. Excellent. And that's the cover of it. And it was quite a little expensive undertaking to do the cover. Why? Well, it's a long story. But anyhow, that, and this is a uh, cartoon by a guy in New York. Um, who didn't want his name used. Okay. Uh, it's just Bob. Just Bob. Just Bob. Yeah. Have some speckled band milk. That was mine. <laughs> he did the cartoon. I did that. You captured it. Yes, yeah, I captioned it. Very good. So, and we have already chosen the papers to go into to go that. into the sixth cabin. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, Glenn was part of it. Tom Francis was part of it. I was. Um, what's his name? Who does the? The other member of the executive committee. Dan Pulveri? No. Richard Olkin? No. Uh, Dean Fairbrother? That's it. Dean Fairbrother. I think I, I think we just named all of them, right? We did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Glenn is the latest and last one so far. Good. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing that come out next year. Oh, you'll see it. Yeah. It'll, it'll definitely come out. So, I may die with it, but it will be out in a pine box, of course. Of course, of course, in a plain pine box. So, is there anything that uh, we haven't asked you that we should have? I couldn't say that. <laughs> I probably asked more than I should have. No, no, you were a very good interviewer, and you stuck pretty much to the subject. <laughs> So I didn't have to say, well, I can't say anything about that. No. Which is very good. Yeah, yeah. Well, because we're interested in home. We sure are. And it's, that's what it's all about. It's wonderful. You know, and uh, we've mentioned this a number of times, both in conversation and on the show before, that, you know, you go to these meetings, and it's not like you have to sit around and only talk about Sherlock Holmes yeah. all night. You get to know these people. They become like members of family. They're all friends. Beings. You know, yeah. it's... And it's nice to have that common interest that brings us together. There is. And it lasts for a long time. I never would have met you if it weren't for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And I never would have met Bliss Austin or Isaac Asimov or any of those. Sure. People, this is all Holmes-related. Yeah. And let's hope it will go on for some time. Because eventually we'll all croak. And we hope that there'll be somebody there. To take our place. Sure. That's all. Well, Dan Piznanski, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. It was a lot of fun. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. 
But I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. Welcome to the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere quiz program called Mental Exaltation. If you've ever listened to NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or maybe Weekend Edition Sunday with Puzzle Master Will Shorts, you'll be kind of familiar with our format. So each episode, uh, or prior to each episode, I should say, we post a question or two where people can qualify to potentially become a contestant on the show. And you can find that at IHearOfSherlock.com on our website. Of all the correct answers submitted, we select one at random to either join us as a guest or to be played for by one of our interview uh, subjects during the show. This week, we have Madeline Covey from Emeryville, California with us. Madeline, welcome. Hello. Now, I have to ask, how, how long have you been interested in Sherlock Holmes? Actually, only, uh, I guess about a year and a half, maybe two years now. Oh, so a fairly, uh, fairly a newbie. Yeah, um, I watched the BBC show, but then wanted more and read all of the canon and listened to all of the Burt Cools radio shows and all that kind of stuff. That is so. beautiful. That's exactly how it's supposed to work. I love it. Our plan is unfurling nicely. <laughs> well, um, you qualified because we posted a Sydney Paget image, and we asked if people knew which story it came from. And lo and behold, you told us it came from the Speckled Band. It was one of the uh, less than instantly recognizable Speckled Band images. So that was very impressive. And uh, this episode, episode 77, is all about the 75th anniversary of the Speckled Band of Boston. So you're sensing a theme here, right? I've been down and out, and I've been in demand. But I wouldn't have made it without them. Here's to the band. Magical notes. Well, if you get at least two out of the three questions correct that we're going to ask you, you will have your choice of uh, a, uh, a voicemail recording by a member of the Baker Street Irregulars or a fabulous gift from our IHO's great big grab bag of gifts, our IHO's GBG B. Great. So, are you ready? I think so. Excellent. Well, I am going to turn to Hilton Soames to bring us in. Shall the examination proceed? Yes, let it proceed by all means. Excellent. I love that. Let it proceed by all means. Well, we spent the earlier part of this episode, as you know, talking about the Speckled Band of Boston. So we're going to ask you three questions about bands in the canon. Get two of them right and you win the prize. First question. A question about bands in fashion. Who wore an elaborate costume in bad taste that had heavy bands of astrakhan slashed across the sleeves and fronts of his double-breasted coat? Was it A, Sir Henry Baskerville in The Hound of the Baskervilles, B, the King of Bohemia in A Scandal in Bohemia, or Henry Wood in The Crooked Man? Is it the King of Bohemia? Well, fortunately, this isn't Jeopardy, so you don't have to ask us in the form of a question, but... 
Correct. You are correct. All right, one down, two to go. Next, a question's about bands of industry. When Victor Hatherley is inspecting the press in the engineer's thumb, what does he notice that had gone wrong so as to make the machine lose power? A, multiple bands of rust had collected on a vital component. B, one of the India rubber bands was shrunken and misshapen. Or C, a musical band had previously crushed and their instruments jammed the mechanism. <laughs> I wish it were three. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess the first one? Uh, A, the, the rust? Um, yeah, yeah, the rust. I think it was the rust. I'm sorry. Now, the answer was B, one of the India rubber bands was shrunken and misshapen. I need to reread that one, I guess. I know. Well, we're not all engineers, so I don't blame you for uh, not coming through. And that was a tough one. Finally, a question about bands of accessories. The silver bands around Grant Monroe's pipe in the yellow face allow Holmes to deduce what about him? A, that he has recently been to India. B, that he values the pipe very highly. Or C, that he'd been married three times. He values the pipe very highly because he had it repaired even though it wasn't a very nice pipe. That is absolutely correct. So that means you have won our fabulous prize. Excellent. Well, congratulations on being part of Mental Exaltation. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and uh, we will get your prize right off to you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Hear that music playing. Listen to what it's saying. Throughout the years, I've made a lot of friends. Many became famous, most of them go nameless, but I dedicate this song to all of them. I've sung with the best, and I've had it all. Ah, always a relief. What a relief it is. Well, in lieu of a traditional gas lamp, which is interesting because Edgar Smith, who certainly was the uh, the sparking plug of the Baker Street Irregulars at the time that the Speckled Band was founded in 1940 and a regular attendee of a number of the dinners, we thought we would turn to some publications that come directly out of Boston. Uh, the first is this and this is a marvelous book um and you can find these occasionally at used bookstores in Boston I found this at the Brattle bookshop it is let me see the tavern at 75 1934 to 1959 mm. uh it's it was printed for the tavern club and edited by Edward Meeks and it 
contains, because the, the Tavern Club was an association of many literate gentlemen who also enjoyed uh, poetry and the stage and uh, the arts, uh, it's a collection of writings. And in this case, I found in a section called Lyrics for the Tavern, uh, on page 161, a poem called The Fog Hangs Deep in Baker Street by Philip H. Rhinelander. The fog hangs deep in Baker Street, and distant footsteps briefly pass and die away. And murder goes abroad on shrouded feet with stealthy tread to mark his helpless prey. Such is the day, and such the hour, and who can tell what cast of fate he has to meet? We grapple darkly with an evil power when fog hangs deep in Baker Street. The fog hangs deep in Baker Street, the frowning tide engulfs the living light of day, and London lies beneath a winding sheet while hope recoils and turns her face away. Such is the day and such the hour, the stage is set, the dismal prologue is complete. The fateful bell tolls in the darkened tower, and fog hangs deep in Baker Street. And then the other uh, the other contribution we have here is from the third cab. You heard Dan mention in his uh, interview there about the second cab being the first publication that the Speckled Man put together. And, of course, they have successively uh, released cabs uh, over the course of the decades. And now we're looking forward to the sixth cab that will make its way uh, to us in the early part of 2016. Well, in the third cab, and by the way, my copy is signed by uh, members of the executive committee of the Speckled Band at the, it's from the 25th, excuse me, the 20th anniversary dinner of the Speckled Band, April 22nd, 1960, mm. was held at the Signet Society in Cambridge, and it's signed by Douglas Lawson, Philip Mather, Richard Waite, and James Ketty Jr. Mm. It's one of my one of the favorite pieces of my collection, and the poem is the report of the poet laureate at the Speckled Band dinner, May fifteenth, nineteen fifty nine. It's dedicated to Douglas Lawson, the keeper of the band, and it's by Philip Mather. When meeting only once a year, it always seemed to me quite queer that while these people were commending by frequent sips and elbow bending, there's just one man that we omit. We hope he's never going to quit. His leadership is most tyrannical when calling for those toasts canonical. He works himself into a lather to plan these meetings where we gather. Of all our minds, the strangest is his, devoted to those puzzling quizzes. Now to praise him, I am bent I'm sure you've guessed just who I meant, so let's give him a great big hand, the keeper of the Speckled Band. <laughs> I love that. You know, the... Um the the uh, the world's established great poets have uh, in general nothing to fear from uh, <laughs> from folks in the sherlockian world who take pen to paper 
But how great, A, to be part of a community in which this is sort of a recurring theme, and B, to be able to look back on something like uh, these, you know, that are so rare. This one from 1960 and the other one you just read. I really love that. And how lovely to be um, part of a community of literary people who uh, are moved to uh, explore verse. Yeah. You know, so much has happened to – it's also entertaining, frankly, to hear verse that rhymes. That's true. Particularly when you listen to a lot of modern verse. Not that, not that I have anything against modern verse at all. It's wonderful. But uh, have you ever read Stephen Fry's book on poetry? I have not, No. Oh boy. Yeah, you should uh you should pick that up. He's he's among other things um Fry's written a wonderful book on um on verse and verse forms hmm. which I th- which I let me see actually. I think I may actually. Yeah. It's called The Ode Less Traveled. <laughs> and it's published by Gotham Books. He says here, I have a dark and dreadful secret. I write poetry. I believe poetry is a primal impulse within all of us. I believe we are all capable of it. And furthermore, that a small, often ignored corner of us positively yearns to try it. So uh, for those of you who would like to write some poetry or learn more about it, I'd recommend that book. But those were great. I love those. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's one of those things where... um you know, you, you, in, in, in case of, in the case of the tavern at 75, you know, I, I picked it up simply because how often do you find a book about the tavern club? And then in thumbing through it, um, lo and behold, there was something related to Sherlock Holmes. And this is, this is from the tavern club, it has nothing to do with the speckled band of Boston. So it was just one of those, uh, nice serendipitous, uh, types of publications. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Um, thank you for sticking with us for this long, a chock full of nuts episode. Um, <laughs> and of course, I mean your two co-hosts. Yes. Um, but again, if you'd like to be in touch with us, there are a variety of ways. Remember uh, that little contest we said we were running about the monograph series. We, we have that copy available, but only if you call 774-221-7323 or email us your your contribution or email us whatever you want in general aside from the contest at comment at mm. ihearofsherlock.com mm. and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes leave us a review tell other people how you found us how you like us etc etc we love having you as our listeners and obviously we love talking about all things Sherlock Holmes mm. excellent And that just leaves us with the opportunity to point out the obvious, which is that I'm Burt Walder. Huh. Really? Yeah. I, I was Hold going on. to take you for someone else. <laughs> well, oh. I wish you would and oh. put me back differently. Ladies and And that must mean that I am Scott Monty. And, Woo-hoo. Woo. And together we conclude with the, the games, games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. 
Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 